Embedded Insiders. I'm Brandon Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Embedded Computing Design, and I'm here with Rich Nass, who is the Executive Vice President of Embedded Computing Design and Open Systems Media. I do want to make one logistical note. Um, Laura Dolan, uh, who joined us for several of these over the past few months, has moved on, so we wish her the best of luck, and um, hopefully she finds success in her future endeavors. But without further ado, how are you doing, Rich? I am doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, we actually just, both of us got back from uh, the Risk Five Summit, which was uh, this past week in San Jose. Um, a decent turnout. I think they may have wanted to stay in the Santa Clara Convention Center, but uh, a good turnout just the same. Uh, what'd you think of the show? Uh, I thought it was okay. Um, I think that um, most people will agree that there's more hype still around risk five than reality, but um, I mean, that's to be expected. And, and, you know, I don't think anybody's disillusioned by it, but um, if you're in Silicon Valley, I think it's something really cool and everybody's excited about. And if you're in China, it's something really cool and everybody's excited about. But I think if you're not in one of those two places, there's more of um, what is this thing and why should I care? Yeah, um, actually during the show, I hosted a panel um, some of the members of the panel were Chris Dasanovich, who is the chief architect at uh, sci Five. He's also one of the professors over uh, from Berkeley, who was uh, one of the originators of the RISC-V ISA. Um, we also had Mendy Fermanek, who's uh, represented Open Power, uh, Joseph Jacks of OSS Capital, and then Tim Whitfield, who was who's from ARM and was brave enough uh, to join a panel um, at the RISC-V Summit. Um, and this, the panel itself was about opportunity and risk uh, that's presented by open source hardware. And one of the questions that I asked Kirst uh, was, you know, Sci-Fi, you look at a lot of the design wins that they've had lately, and they appear like they're custom implementations uh, for specific customers based on RISC-V technology. Um, I brought up whether or not that was good for the ecosystem, the RISC-V ecosystem, um, as a whole, uh, and whether or not that was going to create any sort of fragmentation or interop interoperability issues in the future, if they're straying, um, you know, into really incredibly custom implementations. And Chris' response was no. I mean, that's the purpose of a of, of an open ISA. You know, most of the interoperability stuff is going to come through the software interface. Do you think that that's true? I, I wonder sometimes, Rich, whether or not you know, Sci Five has so much control that they're going to do whatever they want and all of a sudden this open ecosystem is really sci-fi and everybody else. Well you raised a bunch of different issues and one of them is specific to sci-fi and one of them is if some XYZ company does what sci-fi is, is attempting to do. So let me go with the latter first. Um, it's great for that company but I don't think it's great for risk five. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, it has the potential to make a really good market for them, but in, but in general, it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't ad advance the risk five spec at all. Right. It's just somebody with, with a custom solution. As, as far as sci five and risk five, um, I think that's a legitimate concern. And I think that the, um, I think the risk five association foundation, whatever they're called, I think that they recognize that, um, that Sci-5 is, is a smidge too powerful. And um, it wouldn't surprise me if you see something change. And I wouldn't, you know, I, I mean, 
Sci Five has been really good for Risk Five, so, so I don't want to make it sound like they're evil or anything. I just think that you know, there's a point where you have to step back and say, okay, you know, let's this is open source, so let's let's make it open source. Right. You know, it's also interesting that you know this is the uh, second Risk Five summit that I've attended, and we still haven't seen a big commitment from any of the major semiconductor vendors outside of Microchip who really got involved because they acquired Microsemi who was, you know, in, involved uh, prior. Uh, but, you know, still NXP, you know, mum's the word. Uh, a bunch of the other semiconductor players have looked at it. There are also some mammoth players who are actually on the board of the Risk-V Foundation or members of the Risk-V Foundation, and they haven't really moved the needle in terms of any public announcements um, themselves. You know, there are whispers, you know, Samsung's looking into it, Qualcomm's looking into it, but it's always just looking into it. And what could really help drive the ecosystem forward is if one of these major players came down, spun up, a, spun, spun out a, an SOC, um, and you really said they're committed to this. I think in, until that happens, you know, we're, we may end up in this middle ground where, you know, sci-fi does that'll have a lot of power and maybe the ecosystem becomes a little bit more stagnant because of it. Uh, it is very much chicken and egg and I have it on pretty good authority that NXP is waiting for the ecosystem to be more, to be more robust. You know, the worst thing that could happen is they come out with a chip and, and the developers can't develop with it because the tools aren't there yet. Right. Um, so they're waiting for the ecosystem to improve. And I don't think it's any secret that they produce that Vega board um, to put in the, in the community's hands to do just that, to uh, enhance, build up, whatever the word is, the ecosystem. And they're just waiting for the right time. Obviously, they have a chip ready to go. It was on the Vega board. So they can right. do it any, any, time that, any time that they want. And you know, they, it's, it's really critical that they do it at the right time. So it, it, it is seen as, as, as a plus, not a, well, what do I do with this chip now that I have it? Moving on right along. You had a topic that you wanted to discuss today uh, that was kind of interested and uh, interesting and interestingly enough, it's related to all of these uh, you know, custom chip implementations. Topic that um, came up multiple times at the RISC-V event was looking at some of these huge vertical companies like the Amazons, the Facebooks, the Apples, and the fact that they're making their own chips. Um, and my question that I'd like to debate with you, but I'd certainly like to hear what the community has to say about it, is that a good thing? Um, that Amazon is making their own chips um, and that they're not going to Qualcomm, they're not going to NXP or ST or Intel or anybody else. Um, they're just building it themselves. And in, in, in the case of Apple, they acquired a semiconductor company to do that, to build their own ICs for their own products. Um, do you think that's a good thing? I don't know if it's a good thing, but I mean, it depends what, you know, from where you, where you sit, if I'm, you know, Jeff Bezos or anybody who's in charge of a public company and I'm looking at the, you know, the bottom line. Yeah. It, it, why, why wouldn't Amazon or Google just create their own semiconductor development, um, you know, division and build these chips that are specific to their use cases. You know, I'll put Apple aside for a second, but you know, 
Google and, and Amazon are built, building these massive data center uh, platforms that are used to accelerate certain types of workloads and, and are really finely tuned to the requirements, not only of the workloads that are coming through, but you know the cost efficiencies of the, of the data centers that those companies own. So if you can just scoop up um, you know, a bunch of semiconductor engineers, SOT architects, EDA specialists uh, from around the industry, why not do that as opposed to, you know, the overhead of outsourcing these designs to a third party, um, you know, it, especially when you have the means like these companies do. I mean, you know, Google, Amazon, Intel companies like this, they, they acquire um, companies a lot of times just to either gut them for their IP or to, you know, have a path forward in case the market takes any sort of turn. Why not? Why not just bring all of that in house? It's not like they don't have the resources. Wouldn't it be interesting to be in a meeting at Renaissance where the product manager comes in and says, Amazon just decided not to go with us. They're going to build their own chips. And by the way, they need 30 million of them. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's it's just a weird situation. Well, why? I mean, isn't that just the tech world? That's tech business, right? I guess, you know, it sort of brings me back to probably before you were born, um, the original PC was built 100% by IBM. They built the microprocessor, they built the hard drive, they built the memory, they built every aspect of that computer. Um, and it wasn't till far later that people started building the individual components. And it sort of seems like the same thing. Well, I, I mean, Amazon isn't out there building its, you know, backplanes and enclosures, is it? No, but they're building chips and they're producing products with their own names on them. Yes, they are. You know, you also have to look at it from the other side. Yeah, the semiconductor companies that aren't building those chips are missing out on tons of revenue, and they're probably getting a bunch of their, you know, brightest minds um, vultured away from them. But on the other hand, it's not that. Amazon or Google are going to the marketplace and directly competing with those companies either with the chips that they're creating, at least not right now. The thing you said right at the end, at least not right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I, yeah, you, you know, th and they're going to start at the high end. So I think that most of the people in the embedded space that we deal with on a day to day, if it wouldn't be affected by an Amazon or a Google you know, commercializing their own chip. Firstly, you got to really think about what would the advantage of Amazon or Google commercializing their chips be? I think that there's, they have more to lose by doing that than, than to gain. Um, you know, they don't want everybody else to know what the secret sauce is in their, in their data center platforms. That's, you know, they squeeze, they're squeezing pennies at that point. You don't want to, you know, out of all, you know, the power efficiency, um, you know, the acceleration, um, you know, of the security or and all of those different things, you know, that is becoming more and more um, what is able to differentiate them is just the economies of scale that they get out of their data centers. Why would you put that out in the big market? Um, but if they did put it out to the market, then I think that the people who would have to be the most concerned are an Intel, um, you know, with their Altera-based, you know, FPGA-based uh, Xeon processors. Um, obviously, NVIDIA, they're creating these massive GPUs for those types of applications. Um, you know, the 
NXPs, TIs, STs, you know, microchips, that th they don't play in that in that sandbox. Okay, the one important factor there is, um, as you know, it cost about $10 million to build one chip, mm -hmm. and it cost about $11 million to do a million of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's that initial investment that's huge, and after that, you just spin them out. Yeah, but what's but what's ten million dollars to to Google or Amazon or Apple even for that matter? Okay, you know, but what what's the phrase? A billion here, a billion there. After a while, you're talking about real money. If they're building these these platforms that are hyper focused on their specific use case, how many <laughs> who's how many Googles out there are is, are there for Google to sell their their chip to? There's not, there's not a million of them, you know, there, and, and the, and the people that, the, that are out there that may potentially be buyers are their direct competition, right? Okay. You're going to sell it to Alibaba and, and Amazon. Uh, I'm going to leave it there. Cause I think we could have this, we could just go around and around this forever. That's true. The insiders recently spoke with Enrico Carreri, chair of the MIPI debug working group, about nine MIPI alliance debug and trace specifications that are now publicly available for download. What's wrong with uh, with the debug landscape uh, in the engineering world today at all? Why do we need uh, more advancements? It seems pretty stable. Well, yeah, I think a lot of our technologies have been around for a while. I think people are familiar with UARTs and JTAG and things like that, and it's been around for a long time. But I think they're becoming not as sufficient for our needs. And what I mean by that is, is there's new things, you know, our platforms and things are, are changing. Uh, low power is becoming a very important thing. And integration of multiple chips and how they're talking with each other is becoming complex. And what I mean by that is, is you may look at it as a system that you're trying to debug instead of a single chip. And now you're having these complex interactions, things may be powering on, powering off. You need something that's a little better at doing that. Where something like a JTAG, maybe if you're using JTAG, if something powers down, you lose your JTAG chain. You don't want that, right? You want to be able to watch those things go up and down and not lose your connection or in this case, lose that JTAG chain. So I think we're looking at newer technologies that really um, go and, and try to solve those, those situations and really help with things like low power and this bigger integration and things like that. The other thing that we're also looking at um, is more of this, what we, we like to call this layering approach, where you can build more capabilities on top of your existing capabilities or fill in the gaps uh, between layers. And so we've been really focusing on that. And if, you've looked, if you look at kind of our MIPI roadmap lately, we've been really focused not just at maybe the interface, but even at the higher levels near the software. And we've been doing a lot of things there as well. So we've been really trying to focus on a lot of these different things because these are the gaps that we see with our traditional, maybe like I said, the JTAG or some of the other um, methods that we've that that people are been have been using over the over time. 
So I know that you um, there's a there's a there's a spec uh, from MIPI Tiny SPP. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and and uh, uh, what your plans are for for pushing these specs into the market? Yeah, absolutely. So we had our sneak peek uh, protocol specification, and um, that has been around for a little bit. And we've been it's a debug communication protocol that we. Um, put on top of other interfaces. And we've been putting it over uh, USB, internet protocol sockets, and things like that. But as I mentioned earlier, low power is becoming a really tough thing to debug. And we've been looking at more low power friendly interfaces. Where, um, But those interfaces are not as maybe uh, high bandwidth as something like USB. So, for example, we're, we've been really looking at utilizing one of MIPI's other specifications, I3C, as a debug channel. Mm -hmm. And I3C has a lot of interesting properties, like being able to handle when devices power down and having multiple master capabilities and things like that. But the problem, one of the problems with sneak peek as it was, and what we would need for something like I3C is things like lower bandwidth and higher latencies. And so what we did is we've, we basically optimized that the sneak peek protocol, we called it tiny SPP because it's smaller because we didn't have the kind of bandwidth in something like I3C versus USB, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've kind of made it a little tiny and optimize for those kinds of interfaces. So when you want to utilize some of these lower power interfaces or these maybe smaller, right, these smaller interfaces, you, some products, especially like in IoT, you don't have these big, huge ser serial IOs. You're, you're not going to have those kinds of things available sometimes. So we're really trying to focus on those kinds of things. And that was what TinySPP really did was really optimized for that, but yet still have the goodness that Sneak Peek provided. You guys are, are opening some of your new specifications up to the public. Um, what's the intent there? A lot of our, a lot of maybe ASIC designers or, or um, chip component makers, they're using our spec, they're using our specifications, and they're putting in the hardware for. Things like I mentioned, the sneak peek or some of the trace um, protocols that we have. But debug hardware is pretty useless without having tooling and software to go with it. Right. And what we found is, is to create, we believe and then we're hoping that by providing the specifications, it makes it easier for these tooling vendors and, and software creators to go help create that ecosystem they're not necessarily creating any hardware, right? They're not creating the actual silicon or whatnot that requires the spec, but they need to understand what that hardware may be doing so that they can create that tool and that software, right? And so we're trying to enable them to do that and really create that ecosystem where we have the hardware vendors creating the silicon and we also have this tooling and software vendors creating the other half of the system. You know, I work for a company that creates all this silicon, right? And what we really want is our customers, we give them that piece of silicon, right? And, and, and all of our members, MIPI members, they're going to give this piece of silicon. 
And when they give them to the different customers, we want the customer to be able to just go to the market and say, oh, I'm going to buy tool, you know, I'm going to buy tool A from, I can buy tool A from X, Y, or Z. And what that really does is if I enable that ecosystem at the end of the day, it will drive costs down as everything as we know, right? If there's competition, that's going to drive the cost down. So, so, and debug is one of those things that, you really don't want to spend money on, but you know you have to <laughs> because it's that evil that you have to deal with. And so anything that we can do to drive that cost down is very beneficial across, our, across the market, right? And that's, I mean, that's the whole thing with the standardization too is to reduce the effort, which reduces the cost. So that's, that's, our, think, that's our thinking, and that's why having an ecosystem is there. Because if you're going to sit there and you're a new, you're a new guy and you're, going to, you're, going to, you're building this chip, well, what are you going to do? You're going to look out in the world and say, oh, well, there's this debug solution with this tool out there. Great. I'm just going to take those two. Really cheap for me to just take it, integrate it, and go. And that's the idea. MIPI provides those specifications so that you can do that in the hardware, and then hopefully we've created this ecosystem that then the software and tooling is ready for you as well. You know, it seems like at the same time, we're either trying to get more low power um, or on the other end of spe spectrum, we want way more bandwidth. How do you see interfaces evolving over the next uh, 5, 10, 15 years? Should, should design engineers be um, looking at new debug interfaces, the physical interfaces um, that they're going to have to be working with? I think so. I mean, if I look at it, it, there is that dichotomy, right? You have the low power and you have the high bandwidth, right? And, and as we probably all know, trying to do those together is going to be very tough. Right. And usually the way we've been approaching it is to say, well, let's take, and then let's go back to that example with sneak peek. So I have sneak peek, right? And I have a, and we have other, we have other ones for trace that um, we have a, overarching protocol. But what we've done and what we're doing now is really looking at it and say, well, if you need the high bandwidth, we can do sneak peek over like USB and providing USB. But if you need sneak peek over some low power, I'm going to give it to you over I3C. And from the tooling aspect, it's still sneak peek. It doesn't matter how I connect and how I get it, that's just a transport. Who cares? The real data is the sneak peek data, and that's the same no matter which interface I take it out of. So we're trying to, and this goes back to what we call our layer approach. We have that layer of sneak peek that's common, but maybe your interface is different, and that's, and, and that's okay. And that's what we're trying to do is say, look, you find the best interface that you need for your product. If you're an IoT little sensor, maybe I3C is the best thing for you because you're that low power and you're that small, right? Something like USB doesn't make sense for you. But if you're a bigger device, maybe USB is. So we allow that. Keeping the same protocol, again, the tooling sees it as I don't care what interface it's coming from. The more flexible you are, and the more you can abstract things and have this layered approach, I think it'll be better for the, the implementers and users of it.
And now time for things that annoy a veteran software engineer, Jean Labrosse, architect of the Micro-C OS RTOS. Many years ago, I've asked uh, one of my software engineers that worked for me to follow our, our com company coding standard, uh, which happens that I wrote those uh, coding standards. But uh, the programmer told me, hey, dude, you know, software is an art. I like to be, to be creative with my code. Uh, so I, I kind of told him, like, look, you know, first, you know, it's not your code. It's the code of our employer. And then second, how about if I paid you the salary of an artist as opposed to an engineer? So, uh, I mean, of course, he didn't take that too lightly. But uh, I eventually uh, ended up firing him uh, for that and other reasons. Uh, I believe in the long term, you know, whatever he he produced would end up being costly to maintain, and in fact, you know, nobody wanted to inherit uh, his creations. Thanks for listening to this edition of Embedded Insiders. For daily industry news, videos, and podcasts, visit our website, embeddedcomputing.com.